You've seen their TV shows. You've watched their webcasts. Now, the boys invite you to Poker in the Ears. Hello, my babies, and welcome once again to Poker in the Ears. I'm Uncle Daddy Joe Stapleton. He is my work wife, James Hardigan. Happy birthday, Joe. Thank you so much. Love celebrating my birthday every week with you. <laughs> Coming up on today's show, we are finally doing it. It is our full-on Rounders episode. Somehow, even though this podcast has been running for more than five years, which is insane in and of itself, this has never been one of our Poker Movie Mondays on a Wednesday, now on Thursday, released on Friday. Uh, is absolutely ridiculous that, number one, this feature is now called that, but also we've referenced Rounders so many times, we've done it as a superfan subject, but how have we never devoted an entire episode to this movie until now? I think we were saving it. We knew a global pandemic was on its way and we were going to need to save rounders for a very special rainy day fair enough good it logic. is finally happening prepare yourselves for a special quarantine edition of the greatest poker movie ever made and it's not even close sorry lucky you <laughs> so give me three stacks of high society and you should have played those kings mike and i caught a hanger sergeant yes 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 many more quotes from the movie to come including a few obscure ones in this week's Superfan Quiz because continuing the rounders theme of this week's show, Alex Funnel from the UK is going to be competing against you, Joe, in a trivia quiz about the film. Interestingly, I didn't compile the first rounders quiz. I didn't go back and check what the questions were, so I hope it's not a direct duplicate of what's already been done. If it is, I'll still probably get most of them wrong, even though I have watched the movie kind of twice in the last month or so. Sure. Uh, I guess we should mention, too, that while we do the breakdown of this show, uh, excuse me, of the movie, we'll also be giving our thoughts on the legendary commentary track. Now, uh, certain versions of the DVD have a uh, Compliment and Levine commentary. I yep. believe John Dahl's with them as well. Yes. But there's also later versions of the DVD that came out that had a couple of hilarious special features. I don't know if you check them out, James. We'll talk about them a little bit later on, including a commentary track with Phil Helmuth Jr., Chris Moneymaker, uh, Johnny Chan, and Chris Ferguson all weighing in on the film. So all of that happening on today's show, plus a brief EPT retro recap. Um, I did play a little poker this week. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I lost $10,000 playing online this week, James. Totally legally, What? by the way. How, how is that possible? Oh, you're such a tease. You are such you a tease. You will find out in just a little bit of that. Before any of that, any of that uh, better call Saul. The season is over. Still have not watched a single episode, and I've managed to avoid all spo spoilers. Bear in mind, I don't spend much time on social media, so I've managed to stay in my bubble. I will visit it. It's one of my favorite shows. You know I'm a huge fan of it, so I will eventually get to this, but just the not right now. The only thing I'll say, which isn't really a spoiler, is there's yeah. not a lot to spoil in this season. Okay. Um, I, I think we all kind of predicted that this would be the last season, and it is clearly not. I was so, surprised. I thought it was going to be the last season, but I think um, going in, Vince Gilligan had said that there'll be one more after this because we've almost, almost caught up with where the timeline of Breaking Bad starts, right? Yeah, it's, and it's really slowing down as we approach that timeline. So that's all I'll say about this season. Uh, I anxiously await you being able to weigh in on it. I did watch a movie called Don't Think Twice about the improv scene in New York. 
Yeah. Um, I forgot to tell you, I finally watched Knives Out. Oh, isn't it great? It's an awesome film. It's a wonderful film. Loved it. I loved it too. I was so mad. My uh, my girlfriend fell asleep in the movie theater during like the last ten minutes, no, and I was you can't furious with her. You can't do that. Uh, we did. Okay, so here's the MCU update. So I had to pay to rent Incredible Hulk. Wow, you're going uh, out of sequence now. You know no, how I feel Incredible about going Hulk out of sequence. Is, is, uh, yes, I right before Avengers started, I was like, we skipped Incredible Hulk. Should we should we just do this the right way? And she agreed. So we rented Incredible Hulk and we fell asleep the first time. We fell asleep the second time. The rental period is now expired. I don't know if I'm going to I don't know what to do now. We've we watched like the first hour of it. I think that enough of what she saw. You know, we have the the uh the the dad Ross, right? Yes. He's like the biggest part of the movie that carries over. Exactly. Nothing else really carries over, not even Ed Norton. So, yeah, you're kind yeah. of you're kind of all right. I said at the time, it's not essential to the continuity of the storyline. I just think it's quite a good movie and it's worth watching. It's definitely worth watching. And also, I Brainiac never comes back either, does he? No. Which is no. weird. Again, it's hinted at, but they haven't done anything with that yet. But hey, the MCU continues. It does. I wouldn't be surprised if we suddenly have callbacks to movies that were made 12 or 13 years previously. Um, I have been spending a lot of time playing the Ori sequel for Xbox. This is a game that Lex has been streaming a lot recently. Ori and the Will of the Wisps. It's the sequel to Ori and the Blind Forest, which is an old school platform game, but with a lot of roots in kind of Studio Ghibli-esque imagery. And it's beautiful. It's stunning. It's a visual masterpiece. And it's also a hell of a lot of fun to play. And very emotional in place as well. The story really engages you. The first one made me cry, okay? Uh, but the second one, I'm kind of probably 20% of the way through and having an absolute blast playing that. But as per usual, work dominates so much of our time, Joe. We're streaming two days a week. We did more EPT Retro this week. We kicked off Season 5. We had Barcelona. We had London. We had Prague. I think the highlight for me of the last two days has been showcasing a high roller because it's all been main events up until now and in yeah. london 2008 we had the first high roller event and okay we only saw the final table but it was a great cast of characters some of the kind of old school and some of the new school who still populate the high roller circuit to this day great chat some great hands and uh you know i think that really showed that do you know what? These high rollers could be a, a really good thing. And that's why we see so many more of them. And then the advent of the super high roller as well, sitting alongside the main event when it comes to making TV shows and live streaming our poker. Yeah, I think what I enjoyed most about the high roller uh, is the, for the first time, right, we, we watched a bunch of guys who really all know how to play poker pretty well. Yeah. And we can see where modern day poker theory starts to come into play when you have this elite group of players all at the final table together. Getting to see John Jawanda talk through some of his hands, uh, very interesting. And also, I think the secondary story, or maybe even the primary story, in addition to the high rollers, is the rise of Jason Mercier. Absolutely, because last week we saw him win in San Remo, and here we are with him finishing in the, the final table at Barcelona at the start of the very next season, just a few months later in real time, and then 
a few weeks later, final tabling and winning the first ever high roller. And I love that chat he has with Juanda at the end, where Juanda is questioning a call that he made. And Mercia is quite honest and says, I was deliberately trying to increase variance because you're a better heads up player than I am. So I knew I was going to have to gamble. I knew I was going to have to take flips. In some cases, maybe even a 60-40. And I thought that, A, the, logically it made sense. But also, as John Juanda said, you're very humble. Yeah, it's um, it's a good answer, even if you didn't think it at the time. I'm sure he did. I'm not yeah. saying he's lying, but even if not, you're like, it's a good way to justify making what looks like a, a bad, quote unquote, lose call in the moment. Very interesting, fun final table there. Definitely recommend you guys go back and check out the replay if you haven't seen it before. Yeah, and of course, we're going to continue with EPC Retro. We're now almost halfway through our run. We've done six weeks of streaming. We're going to do another six or seven weeks. But I think as we explained at the end of Thursday's stream, it's going to be shorter, probably only doing a couple of hours of retro because we're going to be focusing on Scoop for the next three weeks. The Spring Championship of Online Poker is now underway, dominating the tournament schedules on PokerStars, dominating Twitch for the next 20 days or so. So yeah, that's really going to be our primary focus as well. Um, so hopefully you're going to be playing in some of those events. I think it's worth pointing out that there are low, medium and high buy-ins for every single scoop event. There are also satellites up the wazoo and looking forward to doing some cards up replays. So we're still going to be on air on Wednesdays and Thursdays at 2 p.m. Central European summertime. But the mix of content is going to be slightly different. And Scoop should be absolutely massive this year. So make sure you guys tune in if you cannot participate. Why not do both? Uh, I did get to play a little bit of poker over the weekend. I was asked to play. So apparently every Saturday they do like a high stakes game of VR poker. Uh, oh. It's usually like a big game style thing where they take uh, Moneymaker and a couple of the other high rollers who have actually earned massive bankrolls in PokerStars VR. And then they take a uh, like a like a a reg who yeah. plays in the game and give them some money to play with. And I think they get to keep their winnings. So they asked me to play. And apparently the minimum buy-in for this game is half a billion play money chips. Now I had been given money before my account and I, you know, I don't, it's no secret that I don't, I haven't worked my way up to 200 million in chips. Right. But I did win uh, in cash a few times in some of these high roller events I've played. So I had 180 million in my account. And when I went to sit down at the table, I was like, look, um, I, I, I'm not rolled for this game. So the developers who are awesome, this guy named Jordan, uh, super friendly guy. I really can't recommend hanging out in VR enough because the developers are cool. It's a great community. He gives me 500 million to play with. So I sit down with the 500 million and I was playing relatively tight and I was like up 10 million or something or like 8 million. And it just felt kind of boring like i wasn't sure if i was supposed to be more action you know i was playing my normal game yeah so i was like maybe oh and also it's being streamed not by me but by like actual people who are doing commentary as if they're they have all the whole cards it's on a delay it's a legit production yeah i mean i know that they put the functionality in the software to do that so who else was in the game apart from yourself were you the kind of star of the show no, it's me, Moneymaker, and then this kid named Paul, who is actually Grinder's son. Uh, and then there were a couple of other regs, uh, someone named Queen. And there were at least, there's another guy that was like a streamer. 
and then a dude. There's like guys that I've played with before. Like they're, they're just like sort of VR regs. Right. Um, but moneymaker, so moneymaker is probably the biggest name at the table, and he's the player you know best. Yes, absolutely. And so I was I was playing well, I would say, but I just didn't feel like there was enough chip movement. It wasn't that interesting. So I started ramping up the action. I started making bigger than two or three X preflop raises. I'm making it like four or five X. And I think the blinds we're playing are like uh, 100,000, 200,000. And I'm making most of my preflop raises to one or two million. Because uh, I just feel like being given 500 million, it seems weird to be playing with that many big blinds, right? The yeah. big blinds, 200,000. So I'm basically ramping up this game. And James, let me tell you, I got every time I folded, I was getting bluffed. Every time I called, I was trapped. I was fucked in every way imaginable. Moneymaker, moneymakered me so many times. Oh, man. I would have jacks and like blast pre flop, blast the ace high flop, blast the turn. Moneymaker would shove river. I would fold my jacks. He'd show me queen 10. It was just like one of the most frustrating days of poker I ever had. On my final hand, I decided I was going to like put on a little show for the cameras and like raise huge pre-flop with uh, seven deuce. And then the flop came seven high. So I continued for like super huge against grinders kid and then grinders kid jams on me. And so I'm like, well, I have to call it seven deuce. He had pocket tens. HTC so syndrome. Exactly. I pocket. He has pocket tens. I'm out. By the way, I lose the half a million and then I buy in for my 185 million also. So I lose that too. Okay. So I'm down like almost 700 million in chips and I, I leave the game. The game is supposed to wrap up in like one minute or so. I leave the game message Jordan and say, Hey man, just want to say thanks for having me. It was a good time. Uh, I feel like I played the worst poker I've ever played in my life. Sorry. And he goes, no worries. I'm just going to invoice you for the $10,000 <gasps> worth of chips that you dusted off. Apparently that's how much it would cost to ha to get half a million half a billion play money chips in poker stars vr is $10,000. Oh my god. That is exactly how I felt. I felt fucking sick about it. I just felt terrible. And obviously I don't think they really care. I'm there to put on the show or whatever, but man oh man, it would have been nice. Would have been nice to give some of that back afterward. My backers are pissed. <laughs> Well, it's interesting you got to play against Moneymaker because that actually gives us the perfect segue into rounders. And the reason why that was a good segue is apparently the legend has it Rounders is the film that inspired Chris Moneymaker to play poker. It inspired him to open a Stars account, qualify for the World Series, win the WSOP in 2003. Plus, he was part of our viewing experience this time around. As you said at the top of the show, Joe, we watched the version of Rounders with the commentary featuring professional poker players, which I ascertained from the conversation was recorded in the wake of Moneymaker's WSOP win in 2003 and first appeared on the special edition version of the DVD around that time. Um, I have the Blu-ray version. It's been carried over to that. And just a quick note about directors or filmmakers' commentaries. 
Yeah. They first kind of appeared on Laserdisc around the early 90s, and yeah. then on DVD and later on Blu-ray. And there are some which are really good. When you've got a great filmmaker, a great writer, or a great director giving you an insight into their thought process and how the film was made, at best, they enhance the viewing experience of your favorite movies. Normally, they're just kind of meh, right? They just don't add anything. At worst, they detract from the pleasurable experience of watching a good film. I mean, film. sometimes the guys are just, you can tell they don't even want to be there. Like, I listened to, like, a director's commentary for either for Big Trouble Little China or The Thing, and it's Kurt Russell and John Carpenter, and they're talking about their kids going to hockey practice. Yeah, and, and that's kind of how I felt to a certain degree about this commentary. It was like sitting in a room with these four guys, watching the film with them, and them just having their private conversation, drowning out the movie. And it irritated me. For the most part, it irritated me, especially because Helmuth dominates the conversation. He is the loudest voice, the biggest mouth, and very little of what he has to say is actually about the film. It's mostly about Phil Helmuth and stuff that he wants to talk about and stuff that he wants to promote. See, I partially agree with you and partially disagree. I, I definitely agree with you that I can't imagine anyone who doesn't know those four guys being all that interested in what their comment, what their commentary ended up being. Yeah. It was a lot of inside baseball. Uh, I did enjoy it because I know them and because I knew the kinds of things they were talking about, right? I don't know if someone who doesn't really understand the world at all would enjoy the commentary. I didn't find Helmuth to be as bad as I expected. You were right when you predicted that once you told me how averse you were to his commentary that I was probably going to go the other way. I didn't mind it a lot much. Of course, there were parts where he was ridiculous, where he said there was one line where he said, um, they look at you like you're a god. Uh, at one part where he talked about how people, you know, when when you call someone's hand out, they oh. look at you like you're a god. But just to be clear, we're going to go through this film scene by scene, okay. and I've written down some lines that come out of the mouth of Philip Helmuth Jr. So don't worry, he is going to be uh, he is going to be exposed on this podcast. But I, I also felt like he was the only one actively trying to contribute anything to the commentary track i think the dynamic is interesting because i think moneymaker did want to but kind of felt i guess almost subservient to the pros he was with because this is 2003 moneymaker right he's just won the world yeah. series he's still kind of the new guy on the block he's just you know come from nowhere to win this he even says at one point he hasn't even made the decision yet to go pro and in right. the presence of players like helmuth johnny chan and chris ferguson probably doesn't feel it's his place to take the lead yeah he's kind he is kind of out of place it's it's a bit of a mismatching to throw him in there obviously accolades wise he has got the world series of poker main event and the biggest main event win of all time at that point so it makes sense but yes as far like chris isn't really on the scene he wasn't a professional poker player so his perspective you can understand why he would be a little bit muted for the most part, I found Johnny Chan to be the one who comes across the most well-adjusted and the most and sort of like gives the best insight. 
I, I, I did find that Johnny Chan actually didn't contribute that much. And I have a couple of issues with specific scenes in the movie. All um, right, should we just get into it then? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know whether you want to do an overview at the start, Joe. Suffice yeah. to say, I, I've always been a fan of this movie. Um, I didn't discover it until it was first released on DVD in the UK in the early 2000s, at which point I was already a poker fan. So I was up for watching it. And watching it again and it's been a few years in fact it's the first time that the blu-ray disc has been in my machine it was nice to be reminded of what a well-made film it is very well written very well directed very well paced and almost perfectly cast and that's what i think carries it off is the actors in the individual roles i think that this you know when people ask about perfect movies i'll list back to the future die hard that maybe aren't necessarily my favorite movies but i think this movie is pretty fucking close to perfect as far as uh, like you said story pacing every scene matters every scene is clever every scene drives the story forward um it all just works yes there are some things that are problematic by today's standards but whatever there are way worse movies out there for stuff like that and also look i understand that women aren't portrayed particularly kindly in this movie sometimes women suck there's plenty of shit men in the movie as well yeah. Um, so I don't think it's worth completely vilifying the movie. Yes, we can recognize those things. Um, also, a lot of people are not fans of Joe in this movie. Um, I think she comes across as perfectly reasonable. I feel that the nagging girlfriend character is an unfortunate cliche, but I have a lot of sympathy for her character in this film, and I think it's completely understandable the way that she wants to distance herself from Mike based on his behavior. I don't have this kind of like, oh, she needs to get over herself attitude towards it. Yeah, no, I think that her her reactions are perfectly legitimate and reasonable yeah. for someone that you care about and not understanding that world. And also, um, I think that not understanding that world, I think she does understand it. I yeah. think that it's still a bit delusional, even for good poker players to sort of take the attitude and the shots that Mike was taking in the movie. What I think is really a testament to how good this movie is is that when you're watching the commentary track you can see there are scenes where the four guys who are supposed to be doing commentary are so wrapped up and are actually just watching the movie that's how good of a movie it is absolutely so the film opens with the scene of matt damon's character mike mcdermott going around his apartment and putting his bankroll together from all of the places, the video covers, the books where he's hidden it. And at that point, Chris Moneymaker reveals that he has money laying around his home. That's how we're introduced to the commentary track from our professional poker players, uh, with Helmuth very specifically pointing out that he is with Chris Jesus Ferguson and Johnny the Orient Express Chan, just in case you thought it was any other Chris Ferguson or any other Johnny Chan. And... When Mike's doing that voiceover at the start and he talks about that your aim as a grinder is to win one big bet an hour, they all have a good laugh about that. The advice from the pros is you want to try to win more than one big bet an hour, especially Johnny Chan. And I do find Helmuth preaching bankroll management to be so hilarious here. Don't take your last 30k to the poker table and lose it in one hand. And then he goes on a rant. And he's talking about the hand that opens the movie, the huge cooler, which we'll get into detail in just a moment. He goes, This was so Helmuth. When the flop comes ace, nine, eight, and I have ace, nine, I'm going to be conservative here and not go broke. And then Moneymaker leaps in and goes, Yeah, yeah, I don't play raggy aces. But to be fair to Chris, 
he then forgets that actually it was shorthanded. They were forehanded at the point this hand comes about. So he kind of retracts that sentiment. Um, we get the appearance of John Turturro as Kanish. Uh, Philip Helmuth bigs him up for offering solid advice for trying to stop Mike from sitting down in the game. But yes, we get that hand and Phil Helmuth really loves the way that KGB is smooth calling. He's smooth calling with his aces. But regarding what happens on the river, and just to be clear, we don't know as the audience what KGB has. We're playing the hand from Mike's perspective. It's a it's a, a sweat with Mike hand, if you like. We sure. know he's got a pair of aces, three nines, he's got full house, and he thinks that Teddy was on a flush draw and made his flush on the river. So understandably, he wants to get maximum value. So when Teddy KGB bets the river and he's saying, you know, he's dreaming about Vegas and the fucking Mirage, Helmuth then leaps in. I'd be wondering about folding the hand, but you definitely don't want to raise. You should just call here. And it's like, oh, come on. Don't play results. You think this is revisionist history from Phil, and that's fair. Like, you know, looking at someone losing the hand and then being critical of it, which is odd that he would do it in a fictional hand. I actually think, Phil, this tracks for what we know about Phil. Phil is a conservative player. He makes crazy laydowns that no one would ever make. And he doesn't, he absolutely, say what you will about him, there are many spots where other people would go broke that he wouldn't. I actually found this piece of commentary to be somewhat honest. Okay, I'll 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 accept that. But crucially, our hero does raise, does lose it all. And I had never noticed, and I think maybe it's because, you know, the audio in the movie is dimmed because of the poker player's commentary, that you focus yeah. a lot more on the pictures. And Matt Damon's reaction to losing that hand is perfect. It's an incredible piece of acting. It's a look that we've all seen in reality, but is absolutely appropriate for some guy who's literally just blown his entire bankroll in one hand of No Limit Hold'em. I think I have the same note for later when he's back at Teddy KGB's. Oh, yeah, when he spots the tell. I know we're not there yet. But the same note, which is that at the time, see, I saw this movie in the theater and I was 17 or 18 years old. I had no idea what Texas Hold'em was. Okay, so I'm only looking at this from a movie perspective. And in the theater, I didn't understand the thing about the Oreo cookies. I, I knew there was something there, right? But I didn't know what exactly had been spotted. But it's Matt Damon's acting yeah. in that moment that is just so perfect, just completely says everything, but says nothing. Yes. And to go back to where we started, Joe, when we talk about the casting of this movie and how good the performances are, what's clear is you have a cast and you have filmmakers who clearly immerse themselves in the world of poker. And throughout yeah. this film, everyone and everything feels authentic. And that is its biggest strength, I think. Um, so then obviously having done his load in that game, he takes the break from poker, starts driving the truck for Kanish, and then is reintroduced to the game, in inverted commas, in the judges' game. And this is a, a fun scene, and I guess a little bit ridiculous, the way he's able to perfectly This is a put, movie. That's okay. Yeah, I don't fucking care. It's I a agree. fucking movie. I agree. Um, by the way, the moment he starts getting involved and, and playing the professor's hand for him, Helmuth is there to shout, one player per hand. Yeah. 
rules net. Um, and Phil then compares the judges game to him and Johnny Chan playing in Hollywood. Phil very keen to boast about the fact that he plays in uh, in, in Hollywood home games. Um, and yeah, I guess this is where I just thought it was the, the scene that follows, I guess, when he goes home and tells the story to Joe and then she kind of looks disapprovingly at him. I just, that's one of the weaker scenes in the film for me. I, it, it's not it's not my favorite moment in the film. Look, I think that I, I, it doesn't bother me at all. Uh, it doesn't make me dislike her. It doesn't it doesn't set off my sensibilities in any way. Anyone that has a partner that has promised you they'll stay away from a particular thing, you worry about them relapsing, right? Yeah. Whether it's alcohol or partying or like she says, I would rather you be out getting lap dances and playing poker. You know, this is something where regardless of his skill level or his addiction level to it, he lost everything. Yes. And his uh, we don't know this, but we assume that his way of saving their relationship and probably having her bail him out financially is I am not going to play poker anymore. I think that this scene and her reaction is totally justified. Uh, going through someone's pockets is maybe a little bit uh, a little bit beyond what you should be doing but that's but you understand having been in that situation myself with with people having broken promises and relationships you act outside yourself sometimes when you feel like that promise has been broken yeah for sure so then comes the scene where we're introduced to edward norton where we're introduced to worm and when he is introduced by mike in the voiceover i had forgotten the whole story about worm not snitching on mike and this is so important because it informs their relationship and it justifies Mike's behavior later in the movie. It suddenly makes a lot more sense. Again, coming into this, one of the issues I'd already always had is, look, why does Mike stick up for this idiot? Why is he yeah. trying to help him out? And I'd forgotten this backstory. I'd forgotten this. And it's necessary because you need to have that element to their relationship in order to justify what happens later in the film. It's very important. Um, it's just such a tight screenplay. Like, it's yeah. just every every part of it works. Like, there, there are certain things where you can question someone's decisions. And then you're like, well, actually, they've sort of built all of this correctly yeah um and at this point we get another diatribe from phil helmuth who stresses the importance of living your life clean and bemoans the talented poker players who became cheats and then blow smoke up chris moneymaker's ass which is a really really weird moment because as soon as he gets out of prison worm goes to the uh the rich college kids game where there's blatant cheating going on uh, you know, there's, there's the soft playing and the collusion uh, between him and Mike. And, of course, on Worm's deal, making sure that Mike gets the best hand. And <laughs> Phil Helmuth gets really angry. Come on, man. All this guy's got to do is play great poker. Bemoaning the way that they're approaching this game. Um, and this is why Johnny Chan, by the way, doesn't trust home games. But more importantly, this is the point in the film where I literally asked myself, is Chris Jesus Ferguson dead? Because at this point, he had not said a word. Yeah, he hadn't said anything. He, in fact, I think it takes Phil to tee him up to to get him to actually say anything. I, again, I actually thought that Phil's point was rather salient. That there are talented people in poker who have, uh, for some reason, decided to throw that away for you know for the guaranteed. Uh, We've seen it recently, right? We've seen it in the last couple of years where folks have go to great lengths to cheating when they could probably be a winning player uh, without that. What I disagree with 
is that just playing good poker guarantees you to be a winner in every game you sit down in. Clearly, that is not the, the case. Clearly, that illusion has been shattered since then. Remember, this is 2003 commentary. We're 17 years later. So just being good, everyone understands, doesn't quite work that way. Um, but yes, it's interesting how in this moment, Mike allows himself to get sucked back. Oh, that's the other thing that I think is hilarious is that Phil keeps referring to Mike <laughs> as Matt. Because Phil has to make it clear that he knows Matt Damon and that this is his friend Matt in oh. the movie. Um, we're then introduced to the Chesterfield Club and to Famke Janssen's character, Petra. Um, and Worm obviously sits down in the game and we know he's up to his old tricks. And uh, Phil Helmuth is disgusted, by the way, by the slow roll at the Chesterfield. And by the <laughs> fact, justifiably, Phil, that Worm takes the stake and the profit, but he doesn't hold on to that profit for very long because then he goes to the strip bar and bumps into Grammar, who promptly takes that money and informs Worm that he owes him a substantial amount of money. Cue Helmuthian rant about owing people money, dispensing advice to moneymaker about lending people money, and it just becomes an extended, really annoying and irrelevant chat over a really good scene in the movie where the professor tells Mike the story about how he almost became a rabbi, which ends with the question, what choice? Um, which is a wonderful scene and yeah. clearly sows that seed in Mike's head that maybe he's not destined to be a lawyer and maybe this is his true calling. Yeah, I, I had a question just about, and this isn't a, a complaint with the movie at all. So when they have that scene in the bathroom of the strip club and Grandma shakes down um, Worm and he says, look, you owed uh, 10 when you went in and let's just call it 25 now. I mean, if you can take those sorts of liberties, why not just grab any random person and tell them that they owe you money and <laughs> if they don't pay you, they're going to kill you? Like, I don't understand the rules of this of, of this particular game. Like, if you can just make up a number, like, it's just it's just weird. I, and I, I don't expect anyone to have an answer for that. But, I mean, Grandma could just grab the bartender and be like, you owe me $1,000 due by the end of the week or I'm going to break you. And you're like, okay, I'm fine. Like... <laughs> Yeah. Show, show me the receipt. Um, at the moment that Mike returns home to discover that Joe is gone, the conversation between the poker players becomes completely irrelevant because everyone starts talking about Johnny Chan being amazing yeah. and talking about his results. Helmuth then finds a way to turn the conversation to himself, highlighting all of his major scores in the early 1990s. Um, but then we get... I guess it's the only scene in the movie which takes us out of New York when um, Worm and Mike drive to Atlantic City and go to the Taj. And I love... It's like the, a fun little side mission. It is. And I love the authentic laughs from the four pros watching this movie at the moment that the convention guys sit down at the table and Mike says, these guys have no idea what's about to hit them. And... It's so funny because Helmuth then tries to play down the idea of pro soft playing each other and that they wouldn't actually be competitive and wouldn't try to take each other's money. Yeah, I didn't know how I felt about that because I think that the line stands that Mike says in the movie. He says um, whatever it is, right? He says, like, we're not specifically 
playing soft playing each other, but we're not playing against each other either. And yeah. I think that that's pretty. I mean, look, the, most of what we see, James, right, is televised poker. So on TV, there's ego. There's a lot more ego involved. It's it's on record. It's you know, and it's tournaments mostly. In these cash games, I do think that pros are not incentivized to play incredibly huge pots against each other when there's two spots at the table. And I don't look, he can try to downplay that all at once, but obviously it happens. Maybe not everybody does it, but it would be dumb not to. Yeah, of course. Of course. Um, After Mike returns home from Atlantic City, he puts on the videotape of the World Series of Poker main event where Johnny Chan beat Eric Seidel heads up. Now, clearly, this is a moment when you're expecting some great insight, some anecdote, just anything from Johnny Chan. What do we get? Nothing. And that's the issue I have is that Chan is in the movie twice on videotape and for real. And at no point does he give us anything. That's totally true. That scene, <laughs> there's so little about what happens there, uh, especially from the guy who's in it, who lived it. Uh, it's very bizarre. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and Phil Helmuth can't wait to reveal that he was in the original script, and it was meant to be Mike McDermott winning a hand against Phil Helmuth. Yeah, which I get is kind of a brag, but also not. Because for whatever reason that didn't happen isn't super. It's not something I would really want. <laughs> yeah. Unless I was going to talk about the embarrassing reason for which it didn't end up in the movie because it's a funny anecdote, I probably just wouldn't bring it up. Um. So then we get the kind of final act of the movie. Well, I guess it's the kind of penultimate act of the movie where. Well, again, this is the screenplay does this fucking great job because we have enough drama as it is, right? Yeah. Like we, everything is, the stakes are high, everything is set and they go on this run, this fucking awesome run, this montage of great, cool poker and different sorts of settings. And then we have this, I don't know if I'm skip blowing past, but the, the municipal game. Yeah. I mean, I was just going to say that this is almost like setting us up for the finale, right? That we've got to pay back this money. We've got a couple of days to, to put together this role, to pay back the 15 grand that we're owed. And you've got the montage, you've got the golf club game, where, by the way, when Mike explains his strategy to Worm about how he's going to play the game, Helmuth compares it to his own approach to poker, of course. And yeah, and then, of course, it culminates with the municipal workers, the cops game, uh, which is a stud game, at which point Phil Helmuth explains that Stud is very popular in certain parts of America. PLO is the primary game in Europe. Thanks, Phil, for the insight. Um, And you almost think, okay, this is it. He's almost over the line, right? I'm up. Just got to wait out till morning. And then Worm arrives. And you just know everything's going to turn to shit the moment he sits down in the game. And that is a credit to the direction that that sense of impending doom. I don't know how they pulled it off. Like I wouldn't, I wouldn't begin to know how to do it, but you just know like, holy shit, it's all going to come across here. And the, the mood has just been set. It's so ominous. It's a room full of cops. They're all big, surly dudes. And, and Ed Norton is just perfect. It's just fucking 
Perfect. Absolutely, because he's the real antagonist of the movie, but also has a charm and a likability. And again, when, when Mike says no one has ever stood up for Worm, you feel their friendship, you feel that bond, you kind of feel that Mike has a debt towards him, and that's why he's doing what he's doing. But they've reached a point. There's always going to be a tipping point where it's like, fuck you, you're on your own, especially at the point that Worm tells him, well, actually, I left out a crucial piece of information and KGB is actually bankrolling grammar. And it's like, well, had you known that, you probably would have approached anything very differently. And that's the point where they go their separate ways and Mike realizes he's in a hole, at which point Phil Helmuth tries to sing and then says, Mike McDermott is a man. Uh, wait, when you when he does the ESPN thing? No, he tries to sing a song at this point. Um, when Mike goes to Kanish, by the way, at the, is it the Turkish bath scene, I think, where he goes to try and get money out of him. And yeah. hold on a second. Before we get there, there's often a debate over like what the best line in the movie is. Uh, and I think there is tons of great lines in this movie, whether you're a poker fan or not. I happen to think contextually after they get beat up in the municipal game, you should have played those Kings. Mike is the best line in the movie. I just think that that, it's fucking fantastic. It's so true to character. It's funny in a moment where you think Warm is dead, right? Yeah. Like the way that the, they direct that scene, it looks like, oh, maybe this is it for Warm. He's actually been killed. And the line that comes out of his mouth, you're just like, fuck you, you fucking asshole. Absolutely. Um, so, yeah. So Mike goes to talk to Kanish to try and get money, explains that he needs $15,000. And actually, to be fair, I think this is where Chris Ferguson offers one of the best lines of the poker player's commentary. It's actually a great exchange with Helmuth. Ferguson says, Kanish is the real hero of this movie because he's the real professional poker player. Helmuth goes, nah, he could take a few more chances. At which point, Jesus responds with the cheese pizza joke, which is, what's the difference between a professional poker player and a large cheese pizza the answer is a large cheese pizza can feed a family of four. I thought that was funny. And also, I think underlines his point that Kanish talks about paying alimony and child support. And okay, you can talk about him being a bankroll nit. You can talk about him being a grinder, but he's surviving. He is making a living in the game. And, you know, it, it, it's a really hard thing to do to say no to someone in their time of desperation, in their time of need. But you completely understand why. If I give you if I give you two K, how how long is that going to last you? That money's dead, and then I'll just be throwing good money after bad. It's it's a tough line to take with someone, but I get it completely. I agree with Chris uh, in that Kanish is the hero of the movie and is like probably the most well-rounded, decent person in it. Um, I hate the joke. The joke <laughs> is, you know, part of the reason I hate the joke is because it's the first two dozen times I heard it in my life, it's a racist joke. Insert nationality here. And so when I hear it with poker player applied to it, I'm like, it doesn't, it doesn't even really fit because like the whole illusion about poker is that you're rich, right? Is that you're, uh, so anyway, yeah, I don't oper- like the Operative joke, word yes. being illusion though, Joe. Um, yeah. Of course, during that conversation with Kanich, um, Mike tells the story about bluffing Johnny Chan. And of course, because we have the Chan cameo in the movie, we're destined for more great insight from the man himself. The only thing he says, they made me look 300 pounds. That's it. 
What was well, it like co- filming that scene, Johnny? How did they get in touch with you? How did you feel about being bluffed by this amateur in the game? That's nope. not the only thing they say. They also take note of the fact that Johnny's never asked anybody if they've had it. Oh, yes. <laughs> I would never do that in real life. I would never say, did you have it? I've never <sighs> asked that. Okay, buddy. Thank you. Wow. Commentary track right there. That's what we all tuned in for. Um, so having failed to get any money out of Kanish, Mike then goes to see the professor. And actually, I thought this scene between Matt Damon and Martin Landau was genuinely emotional i actually think it's probably as far as acting and dialogue is concerned possibly the best scene in the film it's the best it may be the best scene in the film at least you know as far as emotion is concerned yeah. like you really feel the emotion and i think that when when martin landau um says he'll give him the money you feel uh, emotional. You feel this sense of relief. You feel this sense of like, wow, I can't believe this person would take a chance like this uh, on me, right? You almost feel like he's taking a chance on you when when Matt succeeds in convincing him to let him loan them loan him the money. Yeah. Oh, by the way, I have to rewind quickly back to the municipal workers game because yeah. there was a point where I nearly pressed stop or rather nearly pressed the menu to switch off the commentary at the point that Worm arrives and starts cheating. Helmuth sighs and says, so much talent, such little discretion. So much talent, so much dishonesty. And at that point, I was done with this commentary track. But I persisted. I persisted I for the purposes of this podcast. I think that's a valid point. I don't have an issue with that. Like, I, I know, think but that... coming out of the mouth of Helmuth, it's just so... But the thing about... Okay, so the thing about Phil is, again, say what you will about him, but his integrity isn't really questioned. Like, I do think he he walks the walk. So, yeah, he's annoying. And, yeah, he's a loudmouth. But he is not a hypocrite. Yeah. Yeah. Um, When Mike goes back to Teddy KGB's place, and by the way, Malkovich only appears at the beginning and end of this movie, right? He kind of bookends the film. And I just love the way he owns this role, chews the scenery, just has so many great lines and an outrageous accent. He is fantastic in this film. Um. And at this point, I did laugh out loud because Mike quotes Dor Brunson as saying the key is to put a man to a decision for all of his chips, which is a gag we've been having on our live streams recently. During the first hand, by the way, when they're playing heads up and Mike has kings, I'm pretty sure Helmuth made a mess of calculating the pot odds. I'm pretty sure Teddy KGB was not getting six to one on a call there and that it was a compulsory call with any two cards. Well... Even if it was, it's not compulsory with any two cards, right? We don't know what what KGB has. We, you know, he could have been screwing around with five tray or seven deuce or eight three. So it's not with any two cards. It is also possible that Helmuth butchered the pot odds because I thought about going back and recalculating, and I was like, I'm not even going to bother doing it. I I don't even think it might not even be possible to calculate the pot odds in yeah. that scene. Yeah. So they're. After Mike wins and is effectively able to pay Grammar and KGB the money owed, has 5K to start paying back the professor, and of course, then Malkovich goads him. I mean, whether it's splashing the pot, making amazing speeches, the pros love him too. He's just so good, and he gets Mike to sit back in the game, and Helmuth bemoans Mike's decision to carry on against KGB. It's not the smart play as far as the poker brat is concerned. And then in the scene where Mike spots 
KGB's tell, the fact that he kind of breaks the Oreo next to his ear. And then <laughs> Mike lays down the ace five and <laughs> Helmuth berates him for laying down ace five. Okay, so he thinks he's got a strong hand, but he might have had ace king there. He shouldn't be laying that down. Thank you, Phil. Um, yeah, some of that was not necessary. I There's actually the only thing in the movie that I didn't love, which is just the minorest of complaints. I didn't love Mike's rationale for telling him the tell. Um, when he says, normally I'd let him go yes. on all night with this, but I don't have time for that. And that didn't quite track for me. Like, of course he has time for that. That's exactly what he needs to happen is for Teddy to not give him his tell. I would have preferred had he said, I should have let him go all night, but it just fucking made me rock hard. Yes. To tell him. That's a really I know good what point. your tell is. And just like, again, for the same reason we accept he sits back down, even though he shouldn't, he tells him the tell even though he shouldn't. That's my only minor doesn't track thing for me. I think that is a very fair comment, actually. And um, <laughs> I think what's really interesting is when we get to the last hand where Malkovich is just on fire and you're just kind of like watching Mike trap him perfectly. And it's meant to be an echo, right, of the hand that Chan played against Seidel in the World Series main event, just lets his opponent bluff having flopped the straight. The pros ask a really good question, which I'd never thought before. What does KGB actually have on that hand? Because yeah, we never so see his cards. Apparently, this is a really famous question that everybody asks Cobbleman, and he refuses to answer it. And apparently, there is an answer. He just refuses to say what it is. I thought the commentators had some interesting insight on this. I really did like their takes. So one of the things they bring up is that maybe it's a set of aces, right? He rivers a set of aces. Yep. And... Um, you know, has like the second nuts or whatever after a straight. I mean, that would be, again, very cinematic to echo the hand where Mike lost to aces, yeah. that KGB would have the same hand when Mike wins against him. So my theory is that it's a stone bluff. Uh, I think it's a stone bluff, and I think it was foreshadowed by the golf pro scene that Mike says... He's just waiting for the guy to make the wrong move at the right time, let him play into me, and then snap him off. I think that Teddy never had a hand, and I think that's why he's so angry that it's not just that Mike got lucky against him, right? Like, anyone can lose a cooler, but to know that he made the wrong move at the wrong time and just totally had the wrong read, and it wasn't just a case of a strong hand runs into a slightly stronger hand— that tracks a lot more for me. That makes a lot of sense. And the other question which the pros asked, again, something I've never really considered before, is why is Grammar so pissed off at the end? He's getting his money. Would he prefer to not have the $15,000 he's owed? Was he so desperate to hurt someone? And also, he wouldn't get to hurt the person who he really disliked, Worm. He'd be hurting Mike, who's kind of an innocent bystander in this whole fracas. Yeah, I don't know. I guess that doesn't quite track. I I think it's just more of like losing sucks. And maybe he's just mad that he has to clean up the chips, right? Doesn't he have to rack all the chips (laughs) when the game is over? The Or uh, maybe, hold on a second, hold on. Just to sort of make excuses here. Maybe he was going to get a piece of the winnings. If, um, you know, a bigger piece. And also get to hurt somebody. 
because clearly he likes inflicting pain. Um, I kind of, when I first saw this film, I was actually disappointed that it ended when it did. I, when Mike gets in the taxi and says he's going off to Vegas, I was hoping we'd follow him. I was hoping no, we'd actually go to the no, World no, Series no, of Poker. No, 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 um, But no, you're 100% right. It, it's absolutely the perfect ending. And when we spoke to Brian Kopperman last year and we talked about Rounders 2 and we know there are rights issues, but there are ideas in place, you know, there's a direction he wants to tell the story. In a way, I don't want that movie to get made because I love where it ends. I don't need to know what happens next to Mike, what happens next to Worm. I'm quite happy to just leave them in that place in time in 1998. By the way, I quite like the scene at the end where he kind of gives the money to Joe to give to the professor. And I think that's a really great line when she says, you know, call me if you ever need a lawyer. And his response is, I will. And I will. Uh, It's a really nice line. Yeah, I think the ending's perfect. I totally agree with you. Like, I think the poker world needs rounders too, right? Like, that would just be such a good thing for us and for the yeah. for the, the the industry and the the world in general to have another movie this good, this clever, this positive to make poker look this cool again. H- having said that, I agree with you. I don't need to see a continuation of this story. Um, I would like to recreate this magic with the same people and hopefully get the same beautiful cake that comes out of the oven. But like, I don't need to know what happens to Mike after he goes away in that taxi. Um, And the final thing that I would like to say, bearing in mind that this has been not just a retrospective review of rounders, but also a retrospective review of the commentary track is that over the end credits, Phil Helmuth manages to get in one last plug for his (laughs) book for fuck's sake. Let it go. I don't know if I <laughs> if I tuned out at that point yet or not. I'm I often I think I watched a good chunk of the credits, so I must have heard it and just you know, also like I've spent so much time around Phil that I, f- I find him amusing. Like he doesn't he doesn't bother me that much at all. Like he really has to say some weird shit for me to take note of it. And that did happen a few times while I was watching this where I was like, oh Phil Phil's going to fill, but um, I th- I thought in general, I liked what he brought to the table. When Ferguson piped up, I thought that I liked what he brought to the table. I'm glad he didn't say much because I didn't have to feel conflicted about how I feel about Chris Ferguson now. Yeah. Um, you know, we get to just sort of gloss over it because he's really a non-entity here. Chris Moneymaker, oddly enough, um even though he's been through a lot since then, right? It's been 17 years. He's now a, a legitimized professional poker player, a guy that that does deserve to be on that stage with Johnny Chan and Phil Helmuth. Um, I still felt it was kind of, it kind of sounded like the same guy to me though. Yeah. The same guy we know now. It no. didn't sound like a different person, which I thought was kind of odd. Um, I you know, still other think- than. I still think there's a little bit less self-confidence there, which I don't think does him any favors trying to vie with the others for airtime in this commentary track. Definitely that. But other than that, he really, and I think that's a testament to Chris that he hasn't changed that much uh, about who who he is as a person over the years. But bizarrely, this is the first of the special features on the Rounders disc that I've ever accessed. I I noticed as well, Joe, that there is the commentary track with John Dahl, the director, and with with Koppelman and Levy. And so one day I 
probably should go back and watch it with their commentary, which I, I got to tell you. So so if we manage to get Brian back on the show, I created a game for him. So on my DVD, it's not the Blu-ray. I have this like special, like very pokerized version where like the box is dressed up like a deck of cards. And when you go to the special and it's like has this animated menu where like uh, grandma opens where the, the door opens, like the secret door, the window where there's like a hooker behind it. But instead, it's the menu oh, God. for the DVD. And when you click on special features, the very first thing it has is a poker tutorial. And then you can play heads up against the DVD. <laughs> that's going to be the easiest game of poker in the world that's going to be easier than playing poker in red dead redemption surely it's not because so what happens is so i've been wanting to teach my girlfriend to play for a long time and i'm like you know what this is perfect here sit here with me and we'll do the tutorial in the quiz the accompanying quiz and then when it says when you pass the quiz they give you ten thousand dollars to play against the pros so we take this tutorial and the tutorial is clearly written by someone that doesn't have a fucking clue because there's like almost errors in the tutorial. Like, let me, let me ask you just one sample question. If we get Brian, I will ask him this too. Ready? But here's a question. One of the questions from it. How many players traditionally play the game of Texas Hold'em? Is it two to four, five to seven, seven to 10 or 12 and up? Well, I guess we're talking full ring, right? So 7 to 10? 7 to 10 is correct. But you can see yeah. that there is like here this is great. This is my favorite one. Which of the which it doesn't even say which of the following. It just says which is the worst hand. Okay. Royal straight, royal flush, straight flush, four of a kind. The royal straight isn't even a hand. Right. So it has so, to be that one because it doesn't exist. Okay, you got it right. I said four of a kind, which was wrong. But some this 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 exam is hilarious. So if we get Brian on, I'm going to give him this quiz and see if he can pass the quiz. Uh, that's on his own DVD. And then when you play against the pros, um, the first hand you get is Ace King, right? So you click raise, and then it. You know, it's like it skips to the part of the DVD, right, that it's supposed to. And then the flop comes out and you flop two pair and you bet and the, the computer folds and they're like, any folds a win. Good job. And then the next hand is three, four. Right. And it's off suit and you click fold. And it goes, nope, sorry. Sometimes you got to take some chances in life. And you're like, come the fuck on. <laughs> Offsuit, you'd be fucking shitting me. The so DVD is not aware of tight is right. It is fucking hilarious. So if you guys can track that down, it awesome. is worth just uh, laughing about. And I'm sure that obviously Koppelman and Levine had nothing to do with the DVD menu. So it'll be funny to see if they're even aware of this particular version if we get them back on the show. Well, talking of quizzes, suffice to say, Rounders is the subject of this week's Superfan Contest. One of them loves the EPT, knows it inside out, and would do anything for the European Poker Tour. The other one is Joe Stapleton. It's Superfan versus Stapes. And please welcome to this week's edition of Poker in the Years, Alex Funnel. Greetings, Alex. Hiya. Hi, guys. Time for some funneling games, huh? <laughs> yes, yes. 
I can but apologize for my Hasute co-host, Alex. Tell us about yourself. What is your story? Uh, my story is uh, I'm a uh, trainee accountant. I'm a, an assistant finance manager at a health and beauty company. Um, so basically we sell makeup and beauty products. Uh, so that's my uh, work story. And then a poker story. Um, I can have my dad to thank for getting me into poker. Um, so then he we went to a couple of uh, pub games and then sort of went from there and sort of played more online, went to uni, joined a few clubs there. And then since and then on since after that, I started playing online. Been quite good with the uh, working from home at the moment. So I get to play a bit more online. <laughs> get to play Are you on winning the side. in the uh, in your in your increased volume? Uh, n not really, unfortunately. <laughs> learning, I think it's learning. Are you looking forward to scoop? Are you going to play any scoop events? Uh, hopefully, hopefully, if I if I if the quiz goes correctly, you never know. Ah. <laughs> yes, because there are T dollars on the line as well as poker in the ears merch. You're quite lucky, Alex, because we don't normally do repeat subjects. Rounders has already been a superfan competition subject, but bearing in mind that we were doing a review of the movie, it would be stupid to do a quiz about anything else. I hope for your sake that you've watched the film relatively recently, because I don't do easy quizzes. Yes, uh, I watched it a couple of days ago, so hopefully it'll still be in there. I think you'll be all right. Uh, are you a fan of the movie? Um, actually, yeah, I did. Um, uh, the first time I watched it was when it was on the last podcast, and then uh, I was like, "Yeah, no, that's, that was quite good." Uh, I did feel for the, I did did feel for the character getting thinking you have a full house, and then uh, not. <laughs> yes. Yes, the, the, the start is, uh, is, is not, a, not, a, not a great start, but it's about the journey and the experience and the lessons he learns from that. Um, let's get into it then. I have 12 questions in total broken up into two rounds. The first round is called Finish the Line. These are all quotes from the movie, which I will need you to complete. And the first three are relatively easy and are worth one point. The second three are harder and are only and are worth two points. If you get it vaguely correct, I might be generous and give you one point. So, so I, for the easy ones, we have to be super accurate, and for the other ones, we got to get it pretty close. Yes, and remember, the first three are only worth one point. The second three are worth two points so alex you get to go first so you can go easy one two or three or you can go hard four five or six uh let's go for four let's go for oh four. he's going for the for the whole tower approach absolutely and so as not to give anything away i'm not going to impersonate the characters i will read these in received pronunciation <laughs> it hurts doesn't it your hopes dashed your dreams down the toilet Go drawing a blank. And your fate is sitting right beside you. So, draw a blank on the first question. Joe, you can go easy or hard. One, two, or three for one point, five, or six for two points. I gotta go for the hard ones before they get all scooped up. Five or six? Five. Generally, the rule is the nicer the guy, the poorer the card player. These guys are real sweethearts. I'm going to give you one point. The first bit is despite being cops are real sweethearts. So you get one point for being close but not nailing it. Uh, got that one. I wouldn't know that one. Uh, one, two, three, or six, Alex? Uh, let's go for three. You want to see the seventh card? Stop speaking. Uh, uh, 
not cosmonauts. Um, stop speaking. Texas back in. Fucking Sputnik. Fucking Sputnik. Uh, <laughs> Joe, one, two, or six? Six, please. Like my uncle Les used to say, when the money is gone, it's time to move on. And this well's run dry. So enjoy it, you secret handshaking assholes. Uh, uh, one or two, Alex? Uh, two. That's a good line. I'm, I'm upset with myself. I didn't remember that one. That's a really good line. Okay, finish this line. I told Worm you can't lose what you don't put in the middle, but... You can't win it either. Correct. For one point. Tied game. Joe, you get question one. He's as close to a friend in this place, but tonight... I don't want to see him. Correct for one point. So at the end of the first round, Joe has a 2-1 advantage. We now enter the trivia round. All the questions are of equal difficulty. Two points are available. If you take the options, one point is available. And remember, if you get the question wrong, the bonus goes to your opponent. One, two, three, four, five, or six, Alex? Uh, six, please. Question six. At what type of restaurant does Worm get comped at the Taj? Uh, it's a Chinese restaurant. Would you like the options? Yes, please. Is it a burger <laughs> joint, an oyster bar, a pizza kitchen, or a noodle bar? A noodle bar. For one point, which means you get the bonus as well. How does Worm refer to the prostitute he paid for? Uh, expensive. Relaxation therapist. Joe, one through five, available. Uh, two, please. When Mike and Worm first visit the Chesterfield, what is the only game running? Stud. Would you like the options, Joe? Yeah. Is it 10-20 stud, 20-40 forced rotation, 30-60 horse, or 40-80 triple draw high-low? The 20-40 forced rotation. Correct, for one point. How much does Worm initially draw on Mike's account? It's your bonus. $2,000. Correct, which means you have a 4-2 lead as we go into the next round. One, three, four, or five, Alex? Uh, four, please. What is the name of the seedy bar where Worm first encounters grammar? Uh, Billy's. It is Billy's for two points. Ooh. And the bonus question, who plays grammar? Uh, um, no idea, unfortunately. It was Michael Rispoli. So we have a tied game. Joe, one, three, five, all available. I'll go with one, please. Who is I wouldn't have not, I would not have known Billy's, by the way, or Michael Rispoli. Well, there you go. Who is Mike's favorite actor? Mike's favorite actor. Uh, I'll take the choices. Is it Kirk Douglas, Robert De Niro, Clint Eastwood or Steve McQueen? Steve McQueen. Incorrect. It's Clint Eastwood. That. <laughs> and that, but you, the good thing is, Alex, because Joe got the main question wrong, you get the bonus. Which Western does Worm cite as an example of Clint always coming back for a friend? Is it, it's not the good, the bad, and the ugly, is it? It's not. It's the outlaw Josie Wales. So we're still tied going into the final round. Pick three or five. F5, please. For what price on the dollar 
Was Grammar able to buy up Worm's debt? Can I have the options, please? 10 cents, 20 cents, 30 cents, or 50 cents? Was it 30 cents? It was 30 cents on the dollar. And you get the bonus question. Before collecting any cash from Worm, what is the total that Grammar calculates he is owed? Uh, 25. $25,000. So you have a 6-4 lead. So Joe, you either need to get your question correct without the options or mm -hmm. one point for the main question and one point for the bonus. Are you ready? Question three ready. is yours. What is Worm's winning hand on the ranking of hands? What type of hand does Worm have when he slow rolls Roman and Maurice at the Chesterfield? I'll take the options, please. Is it two pair, three of a kind, a straight, or a flush? Two pair. You get a point and you get the bonus question. And a reminder that if you get the bonus question correct, you tie the game and we go to the tiebreaker. Which two pair? Sevens. That's one of the pairs. Kings. They were picture cards, but they were jacks. Wow. It came down Ooh. to the very last question, but by a one-point margin, Alex, you have won this week's edition oh, wow. of Superfan versus Stapes. The score, 6 Five. Congratulations. You are going to get very much. some T dollars. So hopefully you can compete in some scoop events. And also we'll let you pick a T-shirt from the exclusive Poker in the Ears range. That's what I wanted. <laughs> Thank you very much for sparing the time and volunteering to come on the show. No worries. Thank you very much. Keep up the good, good work, guys. I enjoy watching, all your, watching you on YouTube and everything everywhere else. Thanks, man. Thanks for being a part of it. We appreciate you and I'm glad you won. Mm, thank you. Cheers. All right, my babies, we're almost out of time for this week's show, The Rounders Deep Dive. Coming up next week, I think nothing. I think we're going to take a week off. What do you say? I think that's an excellent idea. We did discuss this earlier on, but we never made a final decision. And I appreciate that having a planning meeting during the actual recording of the podcast is a little bit unprofessional. But yeah, <laughs> I could do with a break. We've got a lot coming up. We're doing the EPT Retro streams. We're doing Scoop Final Table replays. So I think we might even take a couple of weeks break from the podcast and then come back strong with a Scoop 2020 recap. Chances are we will be tapping up our Scoop correspondent, Benjamin Spraggy Sprag. Sprag. Uh, Sorry, Benjamin Spraggy Bragg. Uh, and also, I need to do some moving around with superfans and stuff. But yeah, let's let's take a brief hiatus, but we'll still be around. We'll still be here. Can I ask you a question before we go? Yeah. When the channel guide lists Ben Sprag as Ben Bragg, did you do that on purpose? Because I know you write those sometimes. No, 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 no. I even went back. I, 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 and I actually did point out to them that they had it wrong and they were trying to get it changed on most of the listings. But bear in mind, once the channel then sends the information out to all the third-party TV listing services, it's very hard to then correct that information. You can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. 
You guys, that is it. That is all the time we got for this week's show. We'll see you in a week or two. Haven't quite decided yet. Until then, there's lots of scoop, lots of EPT retro. We will be around. You can always get in touch with us on Twitter. You can also subscribe, like, and comment on the show. In the meantime, we would appreciate it. But that is it for this week's show. Until next time, for James Hardigan, I am Joe Stapleton. Smell you later. Later.